It's a long weekend. Um, hope you guys are enjoying it. Uh, Missy and I just got back from vacation. Kind of a mini sabbatical. It was about three to four weeks. We, we, were, um, we went down to the States and uh, saw family and uh, spent good time with my parents and my sister and then Missy's siblings and her parents. We didn't get to see them very often since we've uh, lived here, and so it was really nice. The girls got to spend time with their cousins, and then Missy and I uh, left the kids with our parents and went to Europe, and so we left them for two weeks, like two whole weeks without the kids. <laughs> um, one of us was missing them really badly, and the other one was missing them badly. <laughs> Uh, we've done a week away from them before, but two weeks was, was a pretty long time. Um, but God taught us so much while we were away. Um, it was so awesome. Missy and I have been married for 12 years, and so we kind of celebrated 12 years of marriage. And, um, I mean, each year has been uh, hard, but it's been amazing, and uh, each year has had its own challenges. Uh, but uh, it was just awesome to celebrate that time with each other. And uh, I know I fell more in love with Missy. I don't know if it's possible for her to fall more in love with me, um, more than she already does. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, God just gave me a new appreciation for our marriage, for, uh, for my wife, um, for our life together, but also for our kids, um, just being in Europe, Europe is on lockdown right now. Uh, I know some of you guys have, been tra- have traveled to Europe in the past couple of months. Uh, Europe's definitely, uh, yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. They're, they're on lockdown. And, um, and so it just gave both of us a renewed passion to raise our kids as global citizens and to know about the world, to experience the world. Uh, fortunately, we live in this great city, so uh, we experience the world every day by uh, just living here. Um, But then, uh, yeah, three to four weeks away from Toronto felt like a really, really long time. Um, Yeah, maybe. (laughs) No, I I did. We got back, and I don't know about you guys, but whenever I get back from an international trip, I always experience a sort of reverse culture shock. So I... Like, we flew back, uh, so we ended our trip in Istanbul. Um, We were there three days after the attempted military coup happened, and uh, God taught us, like, how to trust him even more. (laughs) Um, Funny thing is, that's not the most volatile, unstable country we've spent time in. Um, But uh, things were actually great on the ground while we were there. Um, What you see on the news is a little different from the actual situation there on the ground. But we were there. We flew from Istanbul to Atlanta, and we got back to Atlanta, and I was like, I hate America. <laughs> it, was just like, it was just like, oh, so, like, I don't know what it is. And that airport, if you've flown to the airport, it's just, I don't like that airport. So, um, but, <laughs> but uh, I just experienced reverse culture shock. And we got back to Toronto, and I felt like we were in, uh, like it was like a hazy dream. It was like a dream. And I, I needed God to remind me why we love this city. I need a few days for God to remind me why he's called us here. Um, 
and that what we do here has eternal significance. And fortunately, it took like two days, and I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, this, is, this is awesome. We're in the city we love. We're in the city God's called us to. We're, we're doing something that has eternal weight and significance with our lives. Uh, but the unfortunate reality is some of you guys feel that way, and you haven't gone on an international trip. You don't know why you're here. You don't know your purpose. You feel like your life is kind of this hazy dream where nothing you do really has eternal significance. Um, you wonder why you're at your job. You wonder why you're having these troubles in your marriage uh, or your, your relationships. You wonder why you're lonely. Um, and you're like, does this even have any purpose? Is God even calling me? Has God even called me? What's, what's going on with my life? And that's, that's the reality for a lot of us uh, in this city. We look great on the outside, on the surface, but on the inside, we're asking all those questions. And we need God to remind us uh, why we're here. We need him to remind us who, are, who we are. We need him to remind us of our destiny and our identity. And uh, I think a lot of us miss that and don't fully grasp it because we missed our foundation. We've missed this, this solid foundation of what our story actually is, okay? And that's what we're doing through this series. So this series is called Jesus Calling. We've been taking you guys through the entire Bible um, over 16 weeks or however many weeks it is. We're about halfway through it. So we're almost to the end of the Old Testament. This is the last message this morning in the Old Testament, and then we'll go into the New Testament. So we've done what's called a biblical theology. We've given you an overview of the Bible, and we, we're tracing two themes throughout the Bible. We're tracing one theme of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, and then we're tracing another theme of discipleship and what it means to be a disciple of Christ, which we call it here at Trinity Life, hear, trust, obey. Hear the voice of God, trust it enough to obey it. That's, that's discipleship. That's our metric for how you're growing as, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. So um, that's all we're doing, and we're, we're trying to show you a story. That the Bible isn't uh, a book of rules and regulations and principles or truth statements even. Um, there's a lot of religious books out there that are those things, but the Bible isn't simply a religious book. It's a book about a relationship of us and God, of a God who is pursuing us, of a God who created us, of a God who wants us to be his sons and daughters. And so, essentially, the Bible is a story, okay? It's not, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this, do this, do that. Hey, man, what's up? Uh, and um, the Bible is, it's our story, and God is showing us that we belong in this story, okay? Um, so our issue is, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you're not familiar with Christianity, with church, with Jesus, if you've seen it uh, in some forms, if you've seen it from the outside, um, um, hopefully this morning you're going to see it in a different light because a lot of us hear truth statements because as Christians, some of us are good at giving truth statements, we're good at saying, you're not supposed to be doing that. The Bible says so. 
uh, or you're supposed to be doing this because the Bible says so. Well, the problem is when you take a truth statement and you, and you tell somebody who has no context for the story why that is a true statement and why that's necessary and why that is true of a person, then it becomes very um, unpalatable, right? It, it tastes bitter to them. They don't want to ingest it. When they hear that truth and, it's, and they don't see themselves in that story, then it just becomes a true statement that is devoid of any meaning for their life, okay? And you may be there right now. You may hear true statements, and whether it's true or not, whether you believe it's true or not, or whether it is true or not, you don't want to accept it because it means nothing to you in your story, okay? Um, so what we've been trying to do in this series is show you that your story is actually this story, that the Bible is our story as humans, as humankind, this is our story, and we do fit into it. So that when you do come across a truth statement in the Bible, it doesn't come out of left field and out of nowhere and rubs against you. It, it says, oh, actually, that makes sense in the storyline of my life. Okay, are you guys tracking with me on this? Okay. Again, our problem is we hear so many truth statements outside of the story that they don't make sense to us. Okay, what we want to do is make sense of all this. So we're at a point in the biblical narrative now, like I said, we've been going through the Old Testament, we're at a point in the narrative where the people that God has called out to be uh, a light to the entire world, um, the people that God has called out to be his people to, sh to um, bring the Messiah to them, to bring the rescuer to them, to bring the promised one to them, they don't know who they are anymore. Okay, they've failed, they've, they've uh, fallen short, they've sinned, and they, were, they had to suffer the consequences of their sin. And now they're back in this land, and they don't know who they are. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. They're like some of us. They don't know their purpose. They don't know their identity. They don't know their destiny. They don't know if what they're doing has any significance at all. They're, they're grumbling, they're complaining. And God, at this point in time, sends people to tell them who they are. So he sends prophets. And today we're talking about the prophetic Christ. And so he sends, he sends prophets to tell them as God's mouthpieces, as God's voice, to tell the people two things. This is the prophet's job. The prophet says uh, who you are. So the prophet tells us who we are. And the prophet tells us who God is. Simple as that. So God sends these prophets, and he says, this is who you guys are, and now this is who God is and who you are in relation to God, okay? And this is where we are in the biblical narrative. And um, let me give you, I want you to keep this statement in mind as we go through the, um, the message today. This is your prophetic word for the day. Um, when you realize the weight of your sin you'll realize the worth of your Savior. So the prophets, they tell us who we are. So the weight of our sin. Okay, they tell us that we're, we're sinners, that we've fallen short. But then they tell us who God is, that he's a worthy Savior. And so keep this statement in mind as we go through the message today. Um, the basic... I think I have this on a slide, too. The basic reason for the Old Testament is, is this. 
it shows us our immense need for a rescuer. Okay, so we, some of us who've been Christians for a while, we look at this book, if you look at this, um, this much of the Bible, see how thick that is, is Old Testament. The top part is New Testament. Most of us spend our lives, our Christian lives, in the top part, and we ignore this part because we don't understand it, because we don't know how to read it, we don't know how to understand it. And this is your lens for understanding the Old Testament. So this will help you bring clarity when you read the Old Testament. If you remember this, it's showing us our immense need for a rescuer, then it'll make a lot more sense to you. Now, I, I use the word rescuer for a specific reason. Um, because inherent in the word rescuer is our inability to save ourselves. Okay, religion says we can save ourselves. You do enough good deeds, then you can get to heaven, or you can reach nirvana, or you can um, go to the good afterlife. Uh, Christianity doesn't say that. It says you can't do enough good things to get to God. That's why Jesus had to come. We needed someone to come and rescue us. Uh, two years ago, Missy and I um, vacationed in St. Lucia for our 10-year anniversary, and we're, has anyone been to St. Lucia? Wow, nobody. Um, it's one of the most amazing Caribbean islands. Um, it's not, this is testimony, like it's not touristy, so a lot of people don't go there, but it has like these beautiful, beautiful volcanoes and rock formations. Anyways, we were there, um, and we're just hanging out on the beach and uh, having a good time. And this guy is coming in on like a one-person catamaran. He's coming in, and it's windy on the, on, on the beach. And the current is pretty rough. And he's coming in fast. And he's about, uh, I don't know, um, like two to 400 meters from shore, something like that. Um, He's coming in, and he pulls the sail wrong. It catches the wind, and it tips over on him. And uh, we, heard him well, or we heard him yell, and then as he's falling in the water, he grabs his shoulder and just falls down. And I was like, is he okay? <laughs> I mean, should we do something? <laughs> and I'm looking, and I see him like he's past the breakers. So... I see him kind of bob, and then I don't see him. And then I see him, and he's not moving. And so um, I was born in Southern California, so the Baywatch kicks in in me. <laughs> and immediately have this, the music starts playing in my mind, have this image of Hasselhoff, and I'm like running in slow motion on the beach. It's pretty epic. And <laughs> um, so actually this did happen, not the Baywatch part, but this is, so I'm running on the beach, and I... He's uh, uh, down from us, so I run on the beach and then go into the water straight in. And I swim out to him, and he's, like, writhing in pain. He says he dislocated his shoulder and he can't swim. Basically, he's, like, swimming in circles, <laughs> you know? Um, and so um, I grab him, like, under the shoulders and, and swim him back in. Try to give him mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, but he kept on fighting me. He was like, ah. it, didn't, it didn't work out. <laughs> um, so I bring him to, sh I bring him to shore, and, um, and everything was great. Like, uh, he was fine. He actually worked for the resort. He was a worker at the resort. Um, 
I think it's great. He, he got his shoulder all slung up and everything. Um, but that's the picture of what the Old Testament is trying to give us. We're just out there. We're floating in the water. We can't swim. We're just swimming in a circle. We're barely keeping our head above water. And we need a rescuer to come and get us. Because if no one comes and gets us, we're drowning. We're dying. There's no hope for us. And that's what the Old Testament is trying to tell us. We're going to talk about that a little bit, actually, throughout the whole message today. So that's, that's the reason for the Old Testament. Let me give you some themes of the Old Testament. The, these are all the themes that we've walked through over the past six, seven weeks, whatever it is. Um, and so I'm just going to summarize this for you guys, uh, walk through each one. So we started off with Christ Creates, and this is... This is the story of the scriptures, guys. So if you missed any of the weeks, you'll get it all, you'll get it all right here. So the, the Bible starts off with Christ creates, and it says a couple things about us. One, it says we are created in the image of God. This is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God says, I created them male and female, and I created them in my image, in my likeness. They look like me. Um, and then, and so don't think physically when we think, when we think that we think physically, but remember God's invisible. Okay. God is invisible, um, until we get to the new Testament, but right now God's invisible. Um, so when we, when I say we look like God, we have his attributes, we act like God. Um, we, uh, he gives us the cultural mandate, which is, uh, have dominion over the world, uh, fill the world, multiply um, and, and that's exercising the image of God in us, this, this, um, this authority we have over the world that he's given us, that he's stewarded to us, entrusted to us to take care of. And so that's, that's Christ creates. It's God as Father creating sons and daughters. It's an intimate relationship with God in the Garden of Eden with the Tree of Life. But remember... God gives us a choice, okay? It wouldn't be true love if God didn't give us a choice. He says, hey, there's all these trees in the garden. There's millions of them. I don't know. There's thousands of them. Um, you can eat from any tree you want. Um, so he gives us a plentiful option to choose good. But then he says there's one tree. This is where the choice comes in. This is where our free will comes in. This is where God's love actually comes in. Because he gives us the, the opportunity to choose um, a lot of good or this one bad choice. And he says, don't eat of that tree. Now, again, I've said this before. The tree isn't inherently evil. The choice is what's evil. When we choose, when we choose what God says is bad, that's sin. Okay? So when I use the word sin, I'm saying we're choosing what God is, has said is bad, um, has said is evil. When God says, all this is good and all this is for you, this one bad thing is over here. And what do you know? Adam and Eve end up choosing that one bad thing eventually. So they choose that one bad thing, and that's when the promised Christ comes in. So when it says fall there, that's talking about the first sin, the first choice of something bad. Um, and also what happens in that is what's called the proto-gospel, the early gospel and where the promised one, the promised Christ, the rescuer, the promised rescuer comes in. And, and he says, yes, you messed up. There's tremendous consequences for your sin. 
It's corrupted the image of God in us. It has corrupted the entire world, which is why there's evil in the world, okay? God didn't create evil. He didn't author it. Evil is in the world because we chose it to be in the world. Adam and Eve did, okay? Um, And if you think about it, we're choosing it every day, okay? Um, So he says, but you did mess up. There's consequences, but guess what? I love you, and there's grace, and I'm going to send someone to rescue you. And that's when he promises the Christ. And, and the tree of life makes, makes so many significant appearances throughout the Bible. Uh, then we have uh, the priesthood of Christ, where, where he says Jesus is going to be the, the Christ, which means um, the Messiah, which means the one, the sent one, the one who, who's coming. Uh, uh, he's going to come, and he's going to be a mediator between you and me, between God and me. So he's going to make a way for us to come back to God. That's what the whole Bible is about, making a way for us to return to the Garden of Eden, return to God. And he starts to make covenants with his people. And there's two different types of covenants in the Old Testament or in the Bible. Uh, There's what's called a unilateral covenant, which God would say, I'm going to make this promise with you, and I'm the one who upholds it. I'm the only one who upholds it. You don't have to do anything. I'll uphold it for you. And then there's bilateral covenants, which, which are, if you do this, then, I will, then God says, I will do this. Okay? Most covenants in the scriptures are unilateral, where God says, this is for you. So salvation, for instance, is unilateral. God says, this is for you. All you have to do is believe. Okay? Um, and we talked about Abraham. And God makes this covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he says, uh, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a seed, the promised Messiah. And I'm going to give you blessing. You're going to bless the world with the Messiah. Okay? And he's going to come through you. That's uh, a unilateral covenant that he makes with Abraham. So that happens. The priesthood of Christ, the kingdom of Christ comes in because God begins to gather a people the nation of Israel, for himself. Now, the Bible says this. There's nothing special about the nation of Israel. The Bible actually says God chose the fewest of all people to use the nation of Israel because it shows his glory even more. Okay? Um, So he didn't choose, like, the smartest. He didn't choose the best. He didn't choose... Um, the wealthiest. He didn't choose, uh, you know, the ones who had the most power. He chose the fewest, this is in, in the book of Amos, of all people in order to make his glory known. So he chooses his people to be a blessing to the entire world, okay? And, and then a king comes in. The king starts to represent the, the promised one that's, that's, that's to come. But the problem is, and this is where the cost of Christ comes in, The people are following God, and then they don't follow God. They follow God, and they don't follow God. And for most of their history, they are rebelling against God. They're sinning. They're living in sin. They're they're not being the people that God has called them out to be. Um, And God gives them chance after chance after chance. He pursues them. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's this really rich word in Hebrew for the word for God's type of love, and it means this, like, relentless, ever-pursuing, always-chasing-after-us type of love. And that word is used all over the Old Testament. 
um, for, for how God is interacting with us as people. Um, even though we're sinning all the time. And finally God says, okay, you guys have to suffer the consequences of your sin. This is the bilateral covenant. God says, if you obey, I will bless. But if you don't, then you're not going to be blessed. You have to suffer consequences of your sin. Okay, and this is just like, think about today if someone, uh, if someone goes and murders somebody. Well, there's consequences for that action, right? Even if, they're not, if there aren't penal or legal consequences, they have to live with that the rest of their life. Okay, there's, there's mental consequences. There's, there's um, emotional consequences. But then, of course, there's legal consequences as well, right? So this is what's happening in, in a lot of the Old Testament, too. We see, and we call it the, the, we're calling it the cost of Christ because it's showing us something. Do you guys remember what it's showing us? It's showing us our immense need for a rescuer, okay? So whenever you see the people suffering the consequences of sin, some of us read that and we think, man, God's such an angry God. Look at him. He's, he's, so, he's so wrathful. Um, but actually, it's showing us that we need a rescuer. It's showing us that we are so depraved, that we, are, that we fail God so much, that we need someone to come and rescue us, okay? Um, and this is where we left off uh, last week on the call of Christ. Daniel talked about this where, where um, the people come back to the promised land. The promised land represents God's rest and God's presence. They come back to, to this point, but like I said, they don't know why they're there. They think they're there to build the temple. They think they're there. They, they don't know who they are anymore. And this is where we come in in the prophetic Christ uh, this morning. And um, we'll get to the passage at the, at the end that Catherine read um, because it highlights the prophetic Christ beautifully and who Jesus is. But like I said, prophets were meant for two things. Prophets, God uses prophets to tell us who we are and then to tell us who God is. And their main message uh, in the Old Testament uh, is twofold. It's judgment, because remember the people keep on sinning. Uh, so it's who we are, and it's salvation. It's who God is. So the prophets always say, man, you guys messed up. But hey, guess what? God loves you, and he wants to restore you. And you see that all over the scriptures. A lot of times we, we read the Old Testament, all we see, like I said, is, is judgment and destruction. But it's, it's more grace and salvation than it is judgment and destruction. We're just like the news and we read. We see all the bad things in the world. Um, we see all the bad things in the Old, Old Testament, and we're like, why are they suffering like this? Well, they keep on, they keep on falling short. Um, and, and so that's the prophet's main message. And this is why the prophetic Christ is so important in the scriptures because when Jesus comes, he shows us perfectly who we are and he shows us perfectly who God is. Okay, so he takes the prophet's message and he epitomizes it. Okay, he perfects it and uh, he shows us those two things perfectly. So Again, throughout the Old Testament, it shows us we're creating God's image, but that image has been marred in us by sin, okay? It's been distorted. It's been messed up. 
but we need it restored. And that's who we are. That's, even today, that's, how, that's what we're living in. We have the image of God in us, but guess what? It doesn't work perfectly because we, we're sinners. We have sinful flesh. And that image needs to be restored in us. And we can't restore it by good works. Only Jesus restores that image in us because he is the image, the perfect image of the invisible God. It says in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of God. So only he can restore that image of God in us. So that's who we are. But then it talks about who God is. And like I said, God is full of grace. He's full of love. I talked about those two aspects. But also God is holy and God is just. And this is where we see his anger and his wrath a lot. Um, So is God in the Old Testament, in the Bible, is God a wrathful God? Yes. And we shouldn't shouldn't, uh, be scared to say that God is a wrathful God. Because the New Testament says God is love. And and people read the New Testament, they're like, that's not the same God. Actually, it is the same God. God is wrathful because of our sin. Now, this analogy isn't going to, don't take this analogy and, and um, it won't help you understand uh, wrath, really, but it will help you understand maybe the reason for God uh, experiencing wrath. So, um, a lot of you guys don't have kids, but imagine you have kids, uh, because that's how we are to God. We're his kids. We're his sons and his daughters. Um, and imagine your kid just comes up to you and, like, thumps you on the forehead over and over again. Just incessantly. Just thumps you. And at first you're like, hey, sweetie, don't do that. Um, can you please stop? Whatever. And she just keeps on doing it. And it just gets annoying, right? And then it gets frustrating. And then you start to get angry. Um, now imagine that same kid is actually not just thumping you, but is smacking you on the face, okay? Um, incessantly, over and over again. Now imagine she brings her friends, her, all these kids, and they're all doing it. And then they start spitting in your face over and over again. And now imagine, like, my daughter's whole school is doing it to you. <laughs> now imagine all the kids in the world. Okay, you get a picture of why... Uh, why there might be wrath in, in, involved in this story. Um, because that's exactly what we're doing to God. Every time we choose uh, evil over what God has said is good, we're just smacking him in the face. You know, if you say, if you want to grade your sin, maybe you're just thumping, thumping him in the eye. But sin is sin. They're all just bad choices. So, uh, every time we sin, we're doing that to God. We're, we're saying, no, I don't, I don't believe you. I don't, I don't think what you said is right is what is good, and I'm choosing this instead. And it hurts, it hurts God. It pains his heart. Um, but imagine the whole world doing this over centuries and centuries, and this wrath is building up. Now, here's the good news. God's wrath doesn't build up and come on us. Because in, in the Old Testament, what these people are suffering is, isn't God's wrath. It's the consequences of their sin. It's the consequences of their actions, okay? So does God punish you for your sin? That's the question I get a lot of times. Does, does God punish me when I sin? No, God doesn't punish you when you sin. 
We don't, we don't have a God, a Father, a loving Father who punishes us for sin. That's because all of God's wrath was put in one place. It was put in Jesus Christ on the cross. The New Testament has a word for this. It's called propitiation. Okay, it's a weird big word um, that appears a couple times in the New Testament. And what it means is that God poured out all of his wrath on the only one who can satisfy God's wrath in Jesus Christ because he's the perfect image. Okay? And so he puts it all on Jesus. And the Bible says actually in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him who was perfect, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. What a beautiful image. He takes away all our sins so that we can experience the righteousness, but not just experience it, that we can become the righteousness of God, okay? So that's why God doesn't punish you when you mess up today. But guess what? There's still consequences for, for you doing things. Um, but that's when... Uh, that's when we trust in Jesus, we believe in Jesus, we accept Jesus, we accept his forgiveness, his love, his grace, his mercy, and we really get the fullness of what that means. Um, because we've realized this statement, we've realized the weight of our sin and the worth of our Savior. So here's a few things I want you to take away um, uh, today. Let's go to the, the next slide. Um, so I want you to realize the weight of your sin today. And here's a statement. You're not a sinner because you sin. Uh, you sin because you're a sinner. Okay? That's a, that's a very um, slight, uh, it seems like a very slight distinction, but it's huge. Because a lot of times we think, well, we sin and we feel guilty and that makes me a sinner. But no, you were born that way. You were born in a sin and that's why you sin. That's why you mess up. Because you were just born that way, and you're going to sin. Um, and you need to realize the weight of that. And the weight of that means you can't do anything about it. That's, that's the gravity, the immensity of your sin. Okay? Uh, next statement is you need to realize the worth of your Savior. And this is here, trust, obey. Uh, this is, like I said, our paradigm for discipleship. Jesus is calling you. Jesus is calling you throughout the entire scriptures. He's been calling you your entire life, whether you realize it or not. Jesus is calling you back to him, uh, back to the Garden of Eden. And all of us are in this here kind of, if we want to put it in stages, we're in this here stage. A lot of us still haven't made the, the leap to trusting and obeying. So listen for God's voice. He's calling you today. Jesus is calling you back to him. He's trying to show you the story is your story. He's trying to show you um, your identity in Christ, your destiny in Christ, your purpose, your purpose here. And it's all through this. And that's how you realize the worth of your Savior. Um, and then as a church, I want us to do a couple things. So I want us to remember the worth of our Savior. So as a church, and when I say the church, I'm saying the followers of Jesus. So yes, we've realized our need for a Savior. We've realized the immensity of our sin. But sometimes we forget, right? We forget, uh, oh, go back to the one before. We forget, um, oh, we're missing one, I think. Go back to the next one. Um, so that's the second part of it. The first part is just remembering 
remembering uh, the weight of our own sin. And so here's the thing. I talked about true statements before. As a church, we need to stop condemning. It's up there? Okay, yeah. We need to stop condemning those. That's good. I was trying to remember it. <laughs> we need to stop condemning those who don't know Jesus with truth and start to love them in truth. Okay? We're good as a church at condemning other people, other sinners, people who are outside of the church with truth and true statements. Okay? That doesn't mean your truth isn't true, but when you take it out of the story, it becomes totally unpalatable to somebody outside of the church because they don't know the story, okay? We're good at saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Hey, you should be doing this. When they're saying, why? Why should I do that? I don't have any reason to do that. You're telling me I shouldn't live this way, but I have no reason to believe, to believe that. And we've, we've divorced the true statement from the actual story of their life, the story that we're supposed to give them, okay? And we've taught them not Christianity, not, we haven't given them a relationship with Jesus, we're, we're just exporting religion, and that's not what we want to do, okay? Um, so the church needs to stop doing that, all right? Um, if you want to judge somebody, let's do it in here. Um, if you want to, if you want to, and when I say in here, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, if I'm doing something wrong, you need to rebuke me. You need to tell me I'm doing something uh, that I know is in the scriptures that I shouldn't be doing, okay? That's your job as a brother or sister in Christ to me. That's your responsibility. That's your privilege. And it's my responsibility and privilege to honor you and to listen to you because I don't know everything, right? I mess up all the time. Um, and so we get to do that for each other. That's the community of faith. That's the community of believers. But those people who aren't in the community of, of believers, we can't expect them to act like us, and we can't judge them for it, all right? We can just share the story with them, all right? And then truth comes out in that story, all right? So remember the weight of our own sin before we start telling people about their sin. Uh, the second one is remember the worth of our Savior. The only difference between a sinner and a saint is our Savior. The only difference between you and the murderer on death row is a Savior, it's someone who has rescued you. It's someone who has made up for your, your shortcomings, for your failings. Okay? So let me show you, as we close, let me show you the, um, the weight of our sin and who our Savior is as we read this passage. So this is, you guys can come on up. Yeah. This is Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. And this is kind of, this is called like the Old Testament gospel right here, the, the message. So uh, it says, behold, and just follow along with me. I'm going to stop and explain things, but follow along with me. Uh, behold, whenever you see behold in the Old Testament, it should get your attention. It's one of these words in Hebrew that like should grab you when you read it. So behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. This is talking about Jesus uh, on the cross. Um, it says his appearance was so marred. This is the weight of our sin, guys, that Jesus had to suffer this. He suffered the consequences. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. 
Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. So he's saying, when Jesus was on earth, there was nothing special about him. Uh, he wasn't like the best-looking person. He didn't, he didn't seem regal. Um, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised, actually. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our, sorrow, our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. <coughs> we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, is, that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he experienced these things for us. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who can, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there is no deceit in his mouth, he was sinless. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, for us. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's the prophetic Christ. That's Jesus perfectly showing us our need for a savior, our sin, the weight of it. He bore all of it. He took all of that on himself. And then he shows us the perfect worth and the immense deep worth of a savior and a rescuer that we need to come and take that all away from us. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the story of the gospel that we give out to this world. And so this morning, I want you to trust Jesus, whether you've been a believer for a long time or whether you, th you think all of this is just a bunch of propaganda. Um, I want you to just Try to listen to Jesus' voice this morning because he is calling you. I want you to try to hear his voice. I want you to trust him. I want you to obey him. I want you to follow in those steps of Jesus. And this word here is his voice. It's him calling to us.
And this word that I just read was prophesied a thousand plus years before Jesus actually came. And Jesus fulfilled everything in that prophecy. And so remember who you are today and remember who our Savior is and live in that this morning.